Hello and welcome back to Life-Giving Habits from Seven Vineyard, where we are looking at things Jesus did and asking, if we do them too, can we become more like Jesus? And so can they become life-giving habits for us? Today, Owen Lynch has a talk which brings some big questions about what we can expect from life when we've made some serious commitments to God in service. It's no joke. I want to tell you a story that I read about this week. It's a story about three men. Three men called Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. And uh, they were diagnosed uh, with a psychotic condition that caused them to believe that they were Jesus Christ. It was known as the Messiah complex. And a psychologist uh, called Dr. Rokic tried to work with these men to help them come to terms with who they really were. So he brought them together in a little group. And he thought they might be able to help one another come to grips with reality. but the experiment led to some pretty interesting conversations. Uh, one of the men would claim that he was Jesus Christ. He would say, I am Jesus Christ, I am God, and I am on a mission to save the earth. And another person would say to him, well, how do you know that? And he would say, well, God told me, to which another of the patients would counter, I never told you such a thing. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think those men really got particularly that well through that uh, through that group interaction, but uh, you know, it, there is a little bit of the Messiah complex in all of us, isn't there? You know, um, to maintain this delusion that you are Jesus Christ, you have to live in a very small world. You have to live in a very small world of one person, because everyone else will tell you that you are not. So these three men lived in their own small little worlds, deluded that they were Jesus Christ. But we all have our delusions, don't we? We all have our delusions. We all have our sense of who we are in the world. I think of Winston Churchill's famous statement when he said, we are all worms, but I do believe that we, so that, that I rather am a glowworm. And, uh, you know, that we all have this real sense that, you know, we're that little bit better than perhaps we really are. And some of us point out our grandiosity with a little bit more extravagance. Muhammad Ali, who was famous for regularly saying that I am the greatest, was supposedly on an airplane when the flight attendant came along and asked him to do his seatbelt up. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant said, Superman doesn't need a plane either. Buckle up. I don't know about you, but I have my own share of a messiah complex. Do you? I think of myself a little bit better, perhaps, than I really am. It's, it's not serious enough to get me sectioned, you'll be glad to know. But it is just as serious and irrational. You see, we all have a tendency towards pride, right? We all have a tendency towards thinking better of ourselves than we really are. The Bible describes that since the Garden of Eden, human beings have already be, always been trying to take God's place in their life. So, brief question, how do we recognize pride in our lives? Because sometimes we can be blind to our own sense of pride. So let's look at a few features of pride. Well, the first, we're going to start with the milder forms. The first feature, if you like, of pride would be vanity. Okay, vanity involves a preoccupation with looking at oneself or being, uh, you know, preoccupied with our status or job title. Um, Here's some strong signs that you might want to be aware of if you're thinking, am I vain or not? Uh, So uh, you might like your job title a little bit too much. Uh, At the gym, you might find yourself looking constantly at yourself in the mirror, uh, wondering whether you're really getting uh, that kind of ribbed, uh, kind of ripped look to, the, to your tummy and your, and your chest. Or um, at the gym, you might exercise in lycra. Uh, that's a sign that you're vain. <laughs> or you might, 
this is, a, this is one that you'll all relate to, I'm sure. When you have a group photo and you're in that group photo, you pretend to be looking at everyone else, but really you're only interested in your own appearance in that photograph, right? Or am I the only person that does that? Yeah, you do it as well. I know you do. So vanity is, most, is perhaps the most common form of pride, and it is silly and irritating, but fortunately it's not the most dangerous. Another feature of pride would be stubbornness. Stubbornness is pride that causes us to shun rejection. Uh, sorry, correction. It causes us to shun correction. Proverbs 29, verse 1, which is a, a section of the Bible which is stuffed full of great wisdom. It says, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, For people who hate discipline and only get more stubborn, there'll come a day when life tumbles in and they break. And by then, it will be too late to help them. Stubbornness prevents us. Stubbornness prevents us from stopping defending ourselves. When was the last time you thanked someone for pointing out your defensiveness? When was the last time you thanked someone for pointing out how defensive you are? We don't do it. We've got to be careful of stubbornness. And the third and perhaps deepest level of pride is exclusion. Pride is a choice to exclude God and other people from our lives and, and, and perhaps from their rightful place in our hearts. That's what pride is. And Jesus said that the essence of life is to love God and to love each other as we love ourselves. And so the, the sort of most, the deepest form of pride is a form of anti-love, where we exclude other people from their rightful place in our hearts. And uh, we must be so careful because pride destroys our capacity to love other people. And it also destroys our capacity to love God. You know, pride, I think this is a really lovely word picture. Pride leads us to bow to the mirror of self rather than God. Pride causes us to bow to the mirror of self rather than God. So... You know, what do we do about this? It sounds pretty bad. Well, Jesus uh, in the Bible invites us to have a life of humility rather than pride. But have you ever tried pursuing humility? It's quite hard, isn't it? Because you end up being proud. Oh, yeah, I'm very humble. Have you ever heard anyone say that? It doesn't sound right, does it? So how do you pursue humility without getting proud? Well, um, we're going to see that here in, in, in today's subject, which is a life-giving habit that I want us to sort of sow into our lives. Um, we can pursue humility by consciously deciding to be servants, by constantly trying to lead a life of service to other people. That's how we can find ourselves humble people and avoid pride. Richard Foster, who wrote a brilliant book called A Celebration of Discipline, said this, more than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of service. And nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. Nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like service in, in a hidden way. The flesh whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. In other words, where you serve someone and don't tell them or don't let anyone else know that you've served them. Do you see what I mean? That hidden service. is It, it says the flesh, that is our kind of, kind of selfish kind of per person inside of us, the selfish spirit within us. It screams against hidden service and it whines against service. It strains and it pulls for honor and recognition. Have you ever noticed that? You do something good and you want everyone to know about it. Yeah? That's called the flesh. That's part of you that is kind of... Uh, 
you know, not the kind of God-renewed part of you, all right? It screams against hidden service because you just want to tell someone when you've done something good, right? Here, as in all areas of spiritual wisdom, our example is Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul, who uh, wrote this letter to a bunch of people in Greece, in a Greek city called Philippi, says this in chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now here, Paul is not communicating uh, that despite the fact he was God, he became a servant. He's saying that because he was God, he became a servant. Paul is saying because Jesus was God, he became a servant. In other words, he's saying God has the nature of a servant. This is really important. Let that sink in for a moment. God's nature is that of a servant. That's what the Bible is telling us in this letter to the Philippians. Let it sink in. And then let me add this to your understanding. The Greek word, because the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the Greek word here for servant is not very good. Uh, sorry, it is good. The English translation of the Greek word is not very good. Because the word in Greek is doulos, which is better translated slave. So God, his nature is that of a slave, the servant heart of a slave. Now, we rightly associate slavery with appalling crimes against humanity. So let me just ask you to suspend your sort of understanding of what you mean by slave. Because in Jesus' culture, this is what a slave meant. And it's no less worse, but in some ways it's more contextual. In Jesus' culture, people would sometimes sell themselves into slavery, principally to enter a life that was easier and more secure than their existence as a poor, freeborn person. Okay? So they would prefer slavery to freedom because they were better off as a slave, because that's the nature of slavery in Jesus' culture. Sometimes um, slaves received an education at their owner's expense, and if they sold themselves to a Roman citizen, they became Roman citizens as well. Um, whilst the Greeks considered slaves to be subhuman, um, the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture, uh, in, 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 and we see this in the, their history written by Moses in, in books like Exodus, we see that uh, the God taught the Jews to res show respect to their slaves. They were not considered subhuman. They were considered human beings to be treated in the same way. Nor did slaves have servile duties. Some would be tutors, doctors, companions, household managers, sales agents, and administrators. So slavery in Jesus' culture was slightly different to the way we would perceive it now. So what I want to do is just look at how we can have this attitude and heart of a servant or a slave and how that can lead us into a place of humility. So Hebrew culture, um, Hebrew culture, slavery looked different. But we can never get away from the fact that to be a slave, to be a doulos, meant to place your entire life in the hands of someone else. In Hebrew culture, your master or your mistress was, was good to you, um, by and large. But nevertheless, it still meant handing over your entire life. And so when we think about that, um, we, we need to understand that that's what Jesus was talking about when he wrote these words in Luke 17, 7 to 10. Or he didn't write them, but he spoke them. He was teaching his disciples about the value of being a servant. And he says this to them, 
So this is Jesus speaking in Luke 17, 7 to 10. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing and looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Wouldn't you rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? No, is the implication. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants and we've only done our duty. We've only done our duty. So four times in that little section that Jesus has just spoken to his disciples, four times Jesus refers to them as servants, as his servants. And that word that he uses is Greek. It's slave. It's doulos. It's slave. And he's saying, if you are my disciples, then you have given up You have given up your entire rights to your entire life. You are now mine. I can tell you what to do, and you have to do it. And there's a profound misunderstanding amongst of uh, of this amongst people who take Jesus seriously. Um, You see, when someone gives their life to Jesus seriously, it means they've given their entire life and they've swapped their identity to become a doulos, to become a servant, a slave of Jesus. Now, can I ask you to raise your hand if you've ever given your life to Jesus? Okay, so you've given your life to Jesus. Okay. Now, with all compassion, and I say this to myself as much as to you, have you really given your life to Jesus in its entirety? Have you adopted the new identity of doulos? Do you consider yourself a slave or a servant to Jesus? Have you given the entire of your entirety of your life to him. You know, if, you, um, if I was to like, take the deeds of my house, um, and I'd have to give you my mortgage as well, but if I was to give you the deeds of my house and the mortgage, okay, you would then own that house. Okay? It's not mine anymore, and I probably couldn't live there if you didn't let me. In the same way, when you give your life to Jesus, you are giving him the deeds to your life. Now, I suspect that many of us have not really thought that deeply about our lives and that we may not have given that much thought to this idea that when we give our life to Jesus we're giving him the entirety of our life do you see what I mean how many of us would consider ourselves slaves to Jesus how many of us have given him the full rights to our life this is really challenging isn't it I'm challenged by it I'm really challenged by it in my own life have I really given the full rights of my life to Jesus have you the truth is, it is a daily battle. Every day, each one of us has this battle within us between the flesh and, and God's spirit, battling against this idea in ourselves that we don't want to give all of our lives to Jesus. We want to give part of it, but you know, we want a shared ownership. But what Jesus says is that there's no such thing. Your identity is that of a slave and a servant, and you're mine to do with as I wish. That's really what Jesus is saying. And so, you know, I think that we, we need to kind of just become aware of that because if we, if we don't become aware of that and we're following Jesus, then we're kind of living a kind of half-committed life, really, a sense of um, half-baked Christianity, if you like. Now, if you want to chew on that more, go home and read Romans 7, okay? Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7. Go and read that at home, a bit of further study. And just see how Paul describes his struggle daily between not wanting to give all the deeds of his life to Jesus and wanting to give all of the deeds of his life to Jesus. So, first thing, becoming a servant concerns our entire lives. Secondly, 
Becoming a servant concerns making no excuses. So this person was called in, in the story that Jesus was reading, this person was called in from the fields, from tending animals, and um, she can't say, or he can't say, look, I'm an outdoor slave, I'm not your chef, go and get someone else. No, Jesus thinks that the owner says, well, now you've done that, go and do this. And, um, you know, what we don't see here is the slave saying, uh, do you know what, um, I'm pretty good out in the fields, but I'm not very good in the kitchen. Can you get someone else to do that? Just doesn't say that. Regardless of gifting, uh, Jesus just expects his slave to go and do the business in the kitchen and in the fields. Now, I've often quoted, and you'll have heard me say this before if you're familiar um, with some of the talks I give, that Frederick Buchner once said this, that your calling or your vocation is where your deep joy meets a deep need in the world. Have you heard me say that before? Your calling or your vocation in life is where your deep joy meets a world's deep need. All right, and uh, I, do, I really believe in it, and I think that's the most profound and liberating pieces of wisdom uh, for our vocation and calling. Now, I have great respect and enthusiasm for techniques that enable us to work out who we are. Have you ever done any of those, like the Myers-Briggs or the Colors, any of those kind of techniques that we use, you know, to understand more about ourselves and more about the people we work with so that we can work more cohesively together? We do it together as a staff team, and we've used it for years. And, and these uh, little techniques enable us to work out what our preferred working style is, what our strengths and weaknesses are, what our personality and communication preferences are. And those things are really, really important and really helpful for finding our groove and finding life and health in the things that we do. But I've noticed in 17 years of leading churches, I've noticed that some people will use that as an excuse for not serving. Uh, and not serving a need where it presents itself. So I've heard people say things like this. Um, I have a gift of evangelism. I remember this well, sitting down back in Nottingham with a couple of people who travelled around the world. Uh, they, they had a strong sense of evangelistic calling, and they were like, you know, we're doing enough course. We'll speak if you like. And we're like, well, that would be great, but would you mind just helping out on the first course with the washing up? Because we do food every, every, alpha, alpha, every alpha evening, which is a, it's a course for people to find out more about Jesus. And, uh, but we'd always provide people with a meal first of all. So we said to them, would you mind uh, just washing up first? Because we, we actually need people on the team to wash up. They said, no, 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 we'd rather speak. Uh, no, would you rather wash up? No, but our gifting is in speaking. Well, it might be, but we need someone to wash up. Would you mind doing the washing up? <laughs> And in the end, they didn't. They just didn't do it because we didn't let them use their gifting in that way. And so they just, you know, got the huff and went off. So when I had someone say, you know, I feel called to lead worship, but I don't want to use that gift to serve the children. Now, in the, at the time, in Nottingham, I was um, responsible for 250, 300 kids. And uh, we had a great kids' church, but we need, you know, we needed gifted worship leaders to lead the kids in worship. They had this gift, but they didn't want to use it to serve the kids. Now, they wanted to be on the stage in front of the adults because there were more people there. They didn't want to use their gift to serve people who really needed it. Or, I'm not called to be a social worker, so I don't want to serve food and drink to the homeless. Not my bag. Yeah, but it's a need. The thing is, is that sometimes um, I think these sorts of attitudes highlight a fundamental misunderstanding of the identity of a person who's given their life to Jesus. If you've given the entirety of your life to Jesus, it means Jesus can ask you to do something, regardless of whether it's in the groove of your gifting or not. And we should expect that God will and regularly does interrupt our lives and ask us to serve in ways that don't necessarily kind of, kind of fall in the groove of our normal gifting and, um, and perhaps may cut across the grain of our temperament, our personality style, our preferences. You see what I mean? 
Because the thing is, we don't get to pick and choose. If you've given your life to Jesus, you can, you can expect him to ask you to do anything. And he'll expect you to do it. That's what really Jesus is saying here. He said this about his disciples, and by definition, he's saying that to people who call themselves disciples today. So I don't know what cuts across the grain for you. We're all wired differently. But we should know this, that we can offer God no excuses when uh, he asks us to do something. We can ask, and I'm not saying for a minute that, you know, that God is speaking to you in every circumstance. You know, whenever a, maybe one of the pastoral staff says, oh, would you like to do this? And, well, it's not necessarily God speaking. I, I'm, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this sense of a servant heart comes out of the knowledge that you have given the entirety of your life to Jesus. I just want to just highlight a couple of things, a couple of uh, excuses that, that we, we give to God. Um, First of all, we tend to make excuses on the basis of inconvenience or insignificance. Okay, so serving another person's needs can sometimes feel inconvenient and insignificant compared to the important thing that we're doing, right? And uh, the slave in this Jesus' story has been in the field all day long, you know, then they have to set to and make dinner, crying out loud, couldn't the master have made dinner? After all, the servant had been in the fields all day, slaving his heart out. You know, Jesus is making it clear that he will often require us to serve another person's need when it is most inconvenient to us, especially when that person's need seems really insignificant compared to ours. Have you ever noticed that, where if you have actually allowed Jesus to interrupt your life, that the other person's need often seems really insignificant, or more importantly, inconvenient? It's just inconvenient to, uh, to kind of stop and attend to their needs. One great example of this is... Any dads in the room, okay, and you've let me lying in bed at night and you hear one of your children cry, uh, and the, you pretend not to hear them cry until your wife moves and gets up, and then suddenly you go, oh, oh, is that, oh, oh, is that Amelie? Oh, I was just going to get up. Are you, are you all right getting up? Yeah, yeah, okay, don't worry. And then, and then the great thing about that is you get the credit for sort of hearing it and offering to do something about it, but then you get to stay in bed, you know? Because it's inconvenient sometimes to serve someone else's need. And we all do it. I mean, obviously, you can tell that I do that a lot because that's just come just like out, off the... I didn't write that down. That's just like the way I do it, right? You know, um, if we are slaves of Jesus, we must allow ourselves to be inconvenienced by the needs of others. And a discipline for us this week, and there's plenty of ways you can work this out in your life, but one thing you might want to do this week is allow yourself to be made inconvenienced, okay? Allow someone to inconvenience you. You, you're sh- you know, charging around the day, doing this and the other, but I'll let's stop and allow someone to interrupt you and inconvenience you. And you will start to develop this habit if you do. Time and again, if you read the stories of Jesus, you'll see how Jesus never ignored the needs of the least and the lost. And he was a busy man. But time and again, time and again, people would come to him, uh, people who in his society he should really ignore because you know, uh, they, they had quite strong social boundaries He didn't ignore any of them. You go and read the stories of Jesus and you'll see that for yourself. Now, whilst not wishing to venerate the founder of the Vineyard Movement, John Wimber, uh, a fat man on his way to heaven, as he described himself, um, he, that is really what he used to call himself, um, he got so used to how Jesus would interrupt him that um, in the end, he just always put a bag of dry groceries in his car um, so that he always had something on hand to give to someone who Jesus pointed out to him. Okay, so that's something to think about. Maybe you want to just have a bag of dried groceries in your car so that when Jesus points someone out to you, you can actually go and help them. Now, you might not come across people who need food every day, but you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised once you start looking out. But you know, um, it is hard to be a servant 
this is a countercultural thing. This is something that will wage against your inner sense of what's right to do or what you really want to do. Um, but every time we assume this identity of being a servant, we die a little bit. We put to death the flesh. And we venerate, we exalt the Holy Spirit in our lives by the time as we do this. Every time we say, yes, I'm a servant, I'm available to you, Jesus, you are choosing the way of the cross. And yes, it will be hard. And no one, let no one misunderstand, when Jesus calls people to follow him, he never says it's going to be easy. So we should expect it to be hard. But Jesus goes even further. He says that servanthood concerns entitlement. Okay, becoming a servant concerns not being entitled to anything. <clears throat> it's tough, isn't it, this? Jesus' story, will, will, this is back to the story, will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Of course not. He's just doing his duty. You know, we live in a culture of entitlement, and we need to understand how our culture affects our sense of entitlement. This is really important. You know, my kids, I mean, bless them, but, you know, when they roll their eyes and go, oh, do I have to? You're like, yeah, I've only asked you to get out of bed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like ridiculous. Um, or how about, Dad, you've got to take me to football. Well, maybe you could just ask me rather than just tell me I've got to do it. Or, um, Mum, there is nothing good in this house to eat. Well, that's a load of rubbish. That's because you're so used to being fed. What my favourite one, my kids at the moment, and I'm threatening to change, do something drastic to change it with them, is that... Um, we, for the part, we've been lucky enough. We found it. We, one of the great things we love to do in the summer holidays is go to France, and we'll just take off and we camped last summer. It was actually for us. It's just a break, and we love getting out of the country. My kids are like, "I'm bored with France. Can we go to another country?" I'm like, "Oh, what have we done wrong as parents? Why is it that you're bored with France? You don't know what you're talking about." But there's a, we've created a culture of entitlement. We live in a culture of entitlement. And, um, and naturally, we need to challenge this behavior as parents. But media, the media is constantly driving this message that we are worth it. You're worth it. Why? You're worth it. You're worth it. And we come to God and we present ourselves in that way and we say, God, we're worth it. We're worth it. But you know what? The Bible describes this, this antichrist, Satan. And he, he, he describes, the Bible describes Satan's great challenge to God in the book of Job. It's spelt G-O-B, job, but we call it Job. I don't know why. Uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. It says, Satan says to God, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. This is what Satan's saying to God. Saying, God, your best servants only serve you for what they can get out of it. They don't serve you for nothing. If things don't go right, if things don't go well, they'll curse you to your face. That's what Satan's saying to God. And Jesus says in response to this, in Luke 17, not directly in response to this, will he thank the servant because he did what he was told? No, of course not. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. You see, the message of the Bible is, God owes you and I nothing. He owes you nothing. Nothing you can do can earn merit with God because you owe, he owes you nothing. And that's a really fundamental theological issue, friends, concerning how we relate to God. Don't get mixed up and think that God owes you something. He doesn't. You're a doulos. 
I'm a doulos. We're slaves. We're servants to God. We can make no excuses. We're not entitled to anything. We can have no self-righteousness before God. We cannot say to God, well, I did this, I did that, and the other. Therefore, you owe me. Because at the core of our being, if you want to follow the way of grace as laid out in in the Bible, then you must understand that God owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. Which means that whenever he asks you to do something, just get on with it. Get on with it. Do it. So, if we are serious about giving our lives to Jesus, we must have a clear understanding of what it means. It means to become a slave of Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, actually, if that's the case, I don't really want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm sure a few of you are thinking that. But you might be tempted to. But don't live a half-baked kind of idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You need to understand that the Bible says, and this is the only, I mean, forget the Bible. If we didn't have the Bible, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. The Bible says, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a slave. Discipleship, this word doulos, it's mentioned 125 times in the New Testament. This is what being a servant of Jesus means. It means being a slave. It means giving the entirety of your life over to him. It means making no excuses for not serving. And it means serving without any expectation of reward. That's what it means. I'm not kidding you. I mean, you could disagree with me. But you'd have to go and really kind of study the Bible hard and then come back and tell me I'm wrong. Because that's what it says. Jesus' story came right from his lips. It's recorded by several of the gospel writers. Now, this is entirely countercultural. It is shocking, and it will repulse that part of you that is fiercely independent and proud. It does me anyway. Part of us will rage against it. But part of me knows this is where true life is. Part of me knows where this is health is. Do you want to be a healthy human being? Or do you want to be a self-centered, independent, proud human being? The only way to live, as Jesus lays out in the Bible, is as a servant and a slave devoted to him. And uh, I believe that's the only way we'll get enormous peace, security, and satisfaction. How does that sound? It's heavy, isn't it? But it is good. It's where the life is. Let me just pray, and then we'll get the kids down, and uh, Chriselle's going to come and lead a time of... uh, communion okay let's pray why don't we stand together well spirit of god we've been singing about you we've been loving you and we've been enjoying your presence um but we can't get away from the incredible wisdom that comes from the bible and uh, this morning um if you want to give your life to jesus i want to lead you in a short prayer and i suspect that many of you will be thinking yeah i need to re-give my life to jesus because i've actually not been i didn't realize that i was meant to be a slave I didn't realize that I'd given the entirety of my life over. So for all of us, I just want to give you the opportunity to just address Jesus. Jesus, we give our lives to you again. We give you our life. And we say we want to exchange the identity of being an independent, proud person to becoming a servant. Someone whose entire life is given over to you. So we give our lives to you now. Now. And may I encourage you to do this every day, this week, and on and on. I give my life to you today. I am your slave. I'm your servant. What do you want me to do today? Congratulations. For those of you that have given your life to Jesus afresh, he enters in to your heart. And so you might want to embrace him now. You've reached out to him. Embrace him. Holy Spirit, come upon you now. Bless you. Let's all make a fresh commitment today. To be a doulos, to be a slave of Jesus.
whatever you want us to do, God, we're up for it. Because we're most bothered about your agenda in this world, not our own. What would this city look like if 200 people decided that they were going to take that seriously? What would it look like? It would be like yeast in bread, making the bread rise in different parts of the city. Let us be interrupted. Let us allow ourselves to be inconvenienced by what Jesus would call us to serve. Amen.